0: My guest today on Talk Design is Ken Tamita. Now, Ken is the founder of Grovemade. Grovemade is well-known in the U.S. as a workspace supplier. So when I say workspace supplier, these are the things that you put on the top of your desk and that you have around you. Um, for those of you who are experiencing more COVID lockdowns, etc., uh, this is beautiful product. This is the kind of thing that you want to sit and see and interact with when you're at your workspace so ken thank you for coming on talk design it's a real pleasure it's been uh, great having a little chat with you to start and let tell people a little bit about you and grove but um and then i'll hit you with some questions so welcome thank you for great. being here man thanks for having me
1: i've been excited to be on my first uh, podcast with somebody so far away <laughs> Yeah, there's a little distance. Well, a little bit about our company. We're a design and manufacturing company in Portland, Oregon. We typically have about 20 employees. Uh, On the nuts and bolts side, what kind of makes us unique is we're vertically integrated. So we do all of our marketing, photography, product design, engineering, uh, and and the manufacturing, the majority of the magic manufacturing traditionally, although things are changing now. Um, and, and we're only direct-to-consumer, so we're just really nice and clean, very focused. Um, and uh, thanks for the introduction on our product line. About five years ago, we started pivoting into Workspace. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, we started just exclusively working on Workspace and specifically the home office. Which was kind of a neglected genre the the opportunities the business opportunity is not as big there, so the big dogs don't really play there and for us, because we're artisans and we make high quality goods that aren't commodity grade and we can't really achieve massive scale anyways no and that's not really my goal. It was a great place to be where we could there was a customer a small customer base that really wanted to make their workspaces nice and it was a good position for us
0: you know one of the things that i think that covid has done obviously with the home workspace it's fantastic but people suddenly putting a value around um aesthetics over just as well as function but function first Mm -hmm. but aesthetics and uh when you when you you know you're your spare bedroom has become your office and you've got two kids or three kids at home doing homeschool. And you've got, you know, a husband and a wife trying to have separate spaces because they both work and they've got separate needs. And and making do is only a very short term prospect because otherwise you you aren't nurturing that space that brings you the income. Normally you'd transition out of that space and out yeah. of your home and into another space. And the home office has been, I think, hugely elevated through this um, and will right. be for from now on for a long, long time. It's not that this pandemic or another one's not going to be the, the breaker of that. It's going to be taking that time to actually curate the space you're in so it supports the output that you can give to your clients and to your you know your your income producing activities mm-hmm. so i think it's really important what you guys do thank you i love that you've basically vertical. Summed up our, uh, mission you know <laughs> there that's, you go. that's what we're here to do yeah well you know I... being vertical also is a beautiful thing because you're responsible for everything all the way and mm-hmm. it also means you can shift change and um adapt Uh, beautifully for for changing needs you know and and maybe a question would be so you're already in this workspace market and covid comes along and obviously that uh, relates to a lot of sales when it comes along but um, not only that what did it change or what did you have to change about your product line um, to better meet it anything or nothing
1: well that was interesting so when covid first hit a lot of people's first reaction is we need to adjust we need to adjust we need to adjust because everybody's working from home but uh, my intuition was that we didn't need to do anything because we've already been studying the work from home customer for years yeah but that can be dangerous trusting your own intuition right so we reached out to our customers our new customers and tried to figure out, hey, is there anything different? And there, there are some new needs. So there's a lot of people that are kind of in between. Yeah. They're not fully committed to being in the office. They think they're going back or maybe they're working on the sofa or the dining table or moving around. Uh, there's definitely new opportunities there. Um, but we chose not to go after it actually because you just described our core customer. It's somebody who really cares about their space they're nestling in, they're committed, they're investing. That's our customer. These people that are temporarily work from home, yep. they're not going to, they need to just get something on Amazon that's really cheap and to get
0: through. Right. Yeah, they can work off a dinner tray if they need to kind of thing. Yeah,
1: Yeah. because they're, they're thinking about going back. And they're, if your mindset is an end to investment, our product is not right for you. Our brand isn't right for you.
0: I like that. I like that. I like that definition or that, def- that you're defining. If you're not investing in yourself with where you're going in your future and um, your workspace, then you're probably not your customer. Exactly. Well,
1: that's fine. You know, yeah. we can't be
0: everything to everybody. So. Yep. Yep. Otherwise you'd be a uh, home Depot or, <laughs> <laughs> or Costco or something. Costco or something. Yeah. Um, tell me about uh, direct to consumer. What, what drove that?
1: Yeah, uh, in the past, in our previous incarnation, when we were in a iPhone, where we started in iPhone cases, we tried wholesale and didn't have a whole lot of success. Um, I think with our product lineup now, maybe, maybe. Uh, the reason we stay direct only is uh, that's much more consistent with our goals. We want to build a strong company, but a small company. Mm-hmm. Just being bigger with lower margin just for the sake of getting bigger doesn't really interest us because the, the biggest weakness of going wholesale, is you don't own the end consumer. So everybody else in the world, every other traditional business, they're trying to go towards more direct, right? Because they can yeah. own the channels, they can own the customer. And COVID is yeah. actually a blessing in disguise for some of these companies that are even struggling in the uh, COVID era because they're forced to go direct to consumer. Everybody's direct to consumer sales are up. Everybody, yes. Yes.
0: Sales. yeah
1: so i think for some of those legacy companies that were holding on to the past sure it might be a struggle for this year but it's a blessing in disguise it's oh. finally the well the ones on who the, the ones
0: who see it will will we'll move with it and the ones that don't mm-hmm. won't be with us and that they'll naturally fall off the tree mm-hmm. yeah um going direct to consumer um Let's go back to the story of uh, the bamboo iPhone case. And uh, for for all the audience, this is where Ken started out and uh, with his partner, Joe, um, the two of them invented the bamboo iPhone case. So do tell us the story and the frightening parts as well as the uh, exciting parts.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, This is 2009. During the recession. Yeah,
0: right on GFC. Uh, yeah, the, the global mm-hmm. financial crisis. Let's launch this sucker.
1: Joe had this vision that the iPhone was going to be huge. And I wasn't fully sold on it. Obviously, I was dead wrong. <laughs> 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 but he kept on insisting, this is huge. This is going to be huge. Um, anyways, he, he had this idea to make a bamboo iPhone case for the iPhone 3 and put uh, laser engraved art on it. And long story short, without a whole lot of business planning or anything, I decided to do it with them and partnered. Uh, The first one was really hard to make. It took about nine months. And when we finally got it engineered and launched, uh, the product totally flopped because the engineer had lost uh, iPhone 4 in a bar. Um, Back then, that was big news that there was a leak of the next phone, so nobody wanted our
0: product an obsolete iPhone three, everybody put their hand in, uh, you know, hands yep. in their pockets and said, I'll wait for the four. Exactly. And you've got your product launched. That must've been a, 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 an interesting conversation you had that morning when that broke on the news.
1: Oh God, the look, the, the feeling of doom. <laughs> <laughs> We'd worked so hard and risked everything to, to get there.
0: But, uh, I should we laugh, were, but uh, you know, Oh, it was comically bad. Yep. Yeah. Something like that going wrong early can often be the blessing over it going wrong when you're like established, and it takes you out when you're established. Um, at mm-hmm. least there you could just go and cry if you wanted and hide in the corner, or you could That's go, "Okay, what do point. we do?" <laughs> I mean, it was just me and Joe. We didn't have any employees or yeah, anything. Yeah, uh, you could just I just learn the hard way. Years you could lick your wound wounds. Yeah, but yeah. you take down, you know, you said 20 employees, you take down 20 incomes for families and oh, everything else. Yeah. That, that's devastating. That's much worse. Yeah, that's absolutely. Much worse. Um, so iPhone 4 came out and uh, I, you, you took it as an opportunity and made an iPhone right. 4 case. Tell me the story about creating the iPhone 4 case and um, then what happened from there.
1: Well, the iPhone 4, uh, we knew what it looked like because of this leak. So we turned that setback into an opportunity and designed a case for that. And for some reason, nobody else did. So the day the iPhone 4 came out, we had a, we launched the product. And it wasn't real because we didn't have an iPhone 4 to build off. You got one on the same day as everybody else. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we just Photoshopped the phone onto uh, a case that we had made guessing on the specs. <laughs> and we put it online and... Uh, we got really lucky with getting a blog post on uh, Gizmodo,
0: which was huge at the time. Yeah. And suddenly we're getting thousands of orders. Thousands. You must have been pretty elated at that point when you first started getting these orders tuning in.
1: Well, it was a funny thing. The first hundred or so, I was really excited. And then it just got out of control and it turned to fear. Pure fear. fear. <laughs> like, oh my God, what have we done? Cause we didn't have a product. We didn't have employees. We had no way to scale it. We had, all we had was, uh, you know, some optimism. Really, You,
0: you had some optimism and a beautiful picture online that was selling like crazy <laughs> and you were taking money.
1: Exactly. We were taking people's money. Yeah. And please note that this is before Kickstarter existed. So yeah. we were basically doing the same principle as Kickstarter. Yeah. There's an idea, We're taking a pre-order and we're not delivering for months, except nobody knew
0: that there was just an idea that that kind of business model. So we had a lot of upset people in our hands. And yeah, essentially you sold the idea, um, which was valid and and good, but then fulfillment became the issue. And what happened Mm -hmm. with that? Tell me, tell us all about that.
1: Well, the biggest challenge that I, I didn't foresee and we certainly never thought about was that we'd have to hire a lot of people. So suddenly we had to hire, get up to 20 to 30 employees and neither of us had any management experience whatsoever. So you could imagine, you know, we just hired our friends and friends of friends and we hired one Reed college kid and we we hired all his friends and we (laughs) suddenly had all these lunatics running around with no direction. And, and really poor management from, from me, you know, I was like a single artist guy. I, I made furniture before this, you know, by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and sculptures for Burning men. <laughs> yeah, completely yeah. unrelated skill set. So
0: that was so, really challenging. So yeah, how did you learn up. the skill set? Because somewhere there you got through it. Right. Well, slowly we tr- started
1: figuring it out, and people on our team grew, but, but a big... Big moment was actually hiring a legitimate operations manager uh, th- three or four years in. This guy, Jim Hassert, uh, he was a consultant for us on, on a, the sales side, and he, he kept noticing how poorly run our company was. <laughs> <laughs> and he would like politely give us tips like, hey, Just you know, maybe we should uh, recap this meeting so everybody's on the same page. And, I think we need to tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So uh, kind of a funny story. We hired him to build out a wholesale sales program and it actually totally failed. Like he failed at what we hired him to do. Right. But he was uh, clearly much more knowledgeable than we were at running companies. And I saw the, like the process in him and uh, soon after he failed at the sales building out a wholesales program, we decided, hey, let's have this guy like, run our company. Yeah. So we hired him full-time to be our COO. Wow. So that, that was a
0: funny story. Um, but we ended That up was, working a, together that was for... a good turnaround for him. <laughs> Could have been yeah. begging for his last check as a consultant, but instead he ended up running the company. Yeah. So that was really helpful, at least on the uh,
1: ops side. So for a couple of years, it took a couple of years for him to kind of turn our culture around and get us to be more legitimate. And eventually we, we caught up on orders and the, uh, the sales growth wasn't outpacing capacity You know, after three
0: or four years. Wow. That's a long time. That's a long mm-hmm. time. Three or four years. You must have had more than one or two sleepless nights. Oh, and, yeah, um, especially in the beginning. I, I bet you and Joe uh, <laughs> must have looked at each other more than once and gone, what are we doing here? are we doing here i had a i had a um years ago i did a a job with my best buddy where we um sold a whole lot of product in to a single company and um anyway this this particular product was a very simple hessian type more muslin type bag that carried a sheepskin and um so I went and got this order for these and, and we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of them. And uh, so, and he organized them all to be made. They, the only catch was, is they had a, a, a side, well, the side was around, it was like a barrel bag and it had a print on the bottom and it had a print around it and it had a drawstring mm-hmm. at the top. Mm-hmm. So what could possibly go wrong? So we ordered all this cloth in from India and um, that came in and it was you know, full of cow shit and stuff like that. So we had to get it washed and then it shrunk so we didn't have enough. And anyway, that was the first little warning that we hadn't maybe bitten off a little more than we could chew. Um, and then we got them all printed, but they were printed in, I think it was 12 languages. And somebody, uh, so we got them printed and then we, we took them to the place where we were getting them cut and so we dropped them off at the guy who was going to cut them and somewhere in there we never gave him a bundling system so we had bags with norwegian written on the bottom and swedish written on the sides and we didn't know how to read what the difference was so we delivered them all and then within about three days we're getting a call from this company saying hey guys uh there's a big problem and we're going, what is it? And they're saying, um, you know, the, 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 the Swedish tops and the Norwegian sides don't go together. And we looked at each other and we went, we're going to lose our houses if we don't fix this. <laughs> so similar, <laughs> similar story. We fixed yeah, it, right. but, but it was a lot yeah. of pain, a lot of pain.
1: <laughs> you, you really can sell
0: too much. It's not necessarily good. Like we could have easily gone bankrupt. That was the yeah. hardest time. Well, when you were talking about that with, um, you know, you've got all these sales and, and you know, sales was outpacing capacity. Um, I don't know whether you've ever read Yvonne Sherrard's book um, from Patagonia. Um, mm-hmm. Let my people go surfing. And he talks about how he nearly sank Patagonia the same way with sales. Mm-hmm. And then he went, you know what? We're not going to be bigger than this. This is where we're going to stay because, this is sustainable and it works and we, we can handle it. And it's a great lesson, a great lesson. And um, anything, in anything, even in yeah. my business now, you know, the amount of sales is critical to the amount of delivery. Um, and you've got to be balancing it all the time. So that was, took you sort of from 2009 through for quite a while. Um, yeah. And what, what then I mean, you know, people have phones on their desks, but what changed things? Where did it go from there? And um, I know you told me before that three months ago you sold your last iPhone case. So tell me about that kind of journey between um, recognizing you've got all these sales, you've worked out your business, you know where the money is, you know how to do it. You've invested in people, you've invested in technology, you've got your vertical, you've got your sales channel. And then you go, how long will this last?
1: Right. So luckily both Joe and I agreed that uh, iPhone cases were a terrible business model long-term. Um, and because you're riding on the shoulders of somebody else's product. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years in, you could see that what the future was. There are more and more phones. So it was fragmenting in terms of the models and then more and more competitors jumping in. Uh, we saw kind of the end that the end would eventually come uh, and we were really lucky that we had the funds to uh, invest in trying to find a new vertical. So we were making enough money on iPhone cases that we could afford to try a bunch of new product verticals and fail. And I think a mi- big mistake a lot of other case companies made is they kept going on the case thing because the it was a hundred percent chance of success Yeah. to try to go after Samsung or whatever, but long-term,
0: hundred percent chance of
1: bankruptcy, right?
0: Well, everything Short-term, has a, it's just a, too
1: tempting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Everything has a, has an S curve, you know, like it, and, and an in innovation it has a, um, a bell curve, you know, it starts off here and then it grows and then you've got to reinvest in it. And, and when you look at trends, you know, you go, there's the early, or well, there's the innovator, which you would have been mm-hmm. with the iPhone case.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then there's the early adopter, which was the first few thousand orders. Mm-hmm. And then um, from that, the main majority um, bought in, and that's a 40% of the market. And then there's the late majority, which is another 40%. And then there's the laggards. And um, what you're describing is, is the 40% run down the hill is still valuable but when you're 90 percent of the way down the hill um, if you haven't reinvented yourself with something else it's going to run out yeah it's and too yeah and your structure's too big usually you haven't trimmed your structure along the way and suddenly your overheads will eat you alive um, exactly. as the sails die quickly and the laggards might be your only last surviving piece I mean, Adrian, I think you described it well. So it was, a, it was basically a race to, as the iPhone case
1: declined, but still pumping in good cash flow, can we find a new business model? We tried a bunch of things. Uh, a lot of them are products that I thought, personally thought were really beautiful, but we just didn't have the customer base for it. And it was a race where we, were, we did find a couple new verticals that worked, but they were slowly growing, and iPhone cases just diving. And like you said, we had too much infrastructure. So when the timing wasn't right, the case business is declining faster than our growth in the other ones. Yeah. We had this large, I mean, not a large company, but 20, 25 employees. And an overhead that's, that's oh, demanding. Right. Yeah. And we couldn't support it. And we were losing bush- bushels of money 2016 and almost went under. Because right. we were just upside down and how we were structured.
0: That would have so been it was, awful, it. was an awful year.
1: It was It was awful, yeah, having to lay off half the team you know there's that's actually much worse than personal failure, I
0: and mean, you feel yeah. like you've failed others yeah isn 't that a lesson as a business owner? Mm. Failing yourself is one thing, failing others is devastating uh, it is, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but but the other thing is as being a designer, um, you live with uh, hope and um, uh, an outlook that takes you forward because you're a problem solver. So, uh, if it doesn't sink you, it makes you stronger. And if it makes you stronger, it makes you better. And then you you move forward from there. So then, going through different product sort of categories, how did you land on Workspace? Like what what happened there that it became the next like in, I suppose chapter of your mm-hmm. business?
1: So the workspace is actually the first thing we tried besides iPhone case. And it was a surprise success. We, we threw together this product line with uh, the monitor stand. If you go to our uh-huh, site, yeah. it's the minimal bent plywood.
0: Yep. Beautiful.
1: And, and that product, we launched it with kind of a suite of uh, like a keyboard tray and some planters and stuff around it. And we, we put that together pretty quickly, actually. Uh, and didn't expect much. We kind of just tried it, and it resonated with with uh, a lot of the blogs. I think the mm-hmm. visual beauty of it took people by surprise. People hadn't seen anything like it, so that was a strong uh, seller even right from the beginning. But very small compared to the mature iPhone case business, right? So it took about five years to build that side of the business up to where we could get rid of um, all the other. Product genres, we were in um, What was nice about the workspace genre is is a totally different customer than the iPhone case genre, which made right. it tough to transition.
0: Right? Oh, I was going to transition because we had to start over. But this was going to be okay. a question: was how many how many came with you? Oh, very few, right? So the iPhone
1: case customer is more of a tech person, uh-huh. like somebody who the Gizmodo reader, gotcha, Gizmodo, digital trends, The Verge. Yeah, People that are into gadgets and uh, accessories, electronics. Um, Where you moved workspace. into a
0: space which was more the dwell reader.
1: Exactly. It, it was more of a design. People that value design, the feeling mm-hmm. of space, craftsmanship. And that was a much better fit for the way we're, our is position. We make our products predominantly in the U.S. They're very expensive to manufacture. They're not going to be the cheapest ones out there, but they're going to be unique. They're going to be handcrafted and you have to have an audience that actually cares about that. Like some people that doesn't matter to them and that's fine. You know? Yeah. But it's forcing that fit of what we're good at onto people that don't really care about that. That's not going to work out.
0: Yeah. yeah you've but got to find to... a match. You've got to find exactly. your tribe and a match and people yeah. who have a, a love for a love for people that, or a love for products that are created by people who care, not just, exactly. c- n- not, not just care about the money, but care about the end user and the product and the world. And, mm-hmm. hmm. So we
1: knew it was a great customer base, but it was very challenging to grow it to where it could sustain the company. And it, was a, it was a slow process of steady growth. Cool. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we fully committed to it and we just stopped developing products for everyday carrier iPhone. Yep. And solely focused on the home uh, workspace user for the last couple of years.
0: And what was, what's been your marketing channel to find new customers? What, what's your, what's worked and what hasn't worked out of mm-hmm. that marketing channel?
1: Well, in that two thousand sixteen year, when we were struggling, that's the first thing I tried to do, which is a huge mistake. We don't have enough sales to support overhead, so let's throw some marketing at it to grow the sales. Um, the problem was we had never really done top funnel marketing. Like our whole company started from just having a compelling product, right place, and right being time. distributed for free online through uh, blogs. Mm-hmm. And we lost even more money during that time just trying to get something to work. So traditionally we haven't really had uh, growth marketing that's worked. It's more been making great products and the product launches drive growth because the products are good and people will talk about it. So it was like that in the beginning and even to recently that was all we did for marketing. And we try other things, paid advertising, and social media it, it was always like kind of questionable like the investments didn't really seem to to pan out yeah and we would always get rescued by our core competency which is designing good products
0: nice um, nice something to go don't go
1: so a couple of years ago we basically gave up on marketing we're like you know what like we're good at products let's just focus on that and build our business around getting new sales by just bringing compelling new products on the market. And we were very successful at that. We were small, but slowly growing and in a sustainable way because our expenses were under control.
0: With the yeah. real team. Mm-hmm. Well, when you go back to the story of, um, you know, your business experience, <laughs> going back to that, to suddenly shift that to being growth in a sustainable way. Um, you, you learned some, you know, you took some big pills right up early and uh, they didn't kill you. You didn't choke on them. You did maybe a cough a bit, but you didn't choke on them. Mm -hmm. So you've learned to survive them. I remember years ago going to Germany and uh, we were selling swimwear. So years ago, I was a swimwear designer, a woman's swimwear. And we went to Germany and we were selling swimwear there. And we got to kind of the end of the show big show that we were at in Dusseldorf and um, we were counting up, you know, how many orders we'd taken. And uh, that was pathetic. You know, it wasn't nowhere near worth the investment. We were talking to some people and uh, they said to us, yeah, you need to come four years, maybe five. And then they'll write paper with you. And we're like, what? Well, they'll, they'll put a pen on paper when they know that you can survive they're not going to help you. They don't want to fill their store with your stuff or even put 10% of it in their store for you not to deliver it because that's floor space they make money out of. And uh, so if you can keep showing up to the show, then they'll finally believe that you're worth ordering from. doesn't matter how good your product is. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> you have to prove to them that you're a, you're a business player, hmm. not about the product as much as anything else, because in every retail shop, every square foot has a, a dollar turnover and um, it needs to get to that dollar turnover to maintain your brand in it. Um, and it's like on your, your website, for instance, you know, you direct to consumer, every picture has a dollar turnover. And um, if it doesn't make the dollar turnover, then you've got to make a decision whether it, it lives or dies based on that. Yeah. So, yeah. cause it, you've only got people's attention for so long and uh, yeah it's it 's interesting business is you know being a designer you need to be in bu- you need to understand business to do design well and and have the opportunity to do design well business mm-hmm. is so key to getting it right um, because once you have a sustainable product like you 've got um, and you 've got a great tribe, you can maneuver and you can try and you can do new things and you can um, You've got, you've got people's trust, you know, they've got your trust and you've got their trust and you can start to play more with them. Um, and that's why I love that you're direct consumer because you've got a voice with your own consumer, um, which is a beautiful thing. They can tell you what they like and don't like. They can, you know, you can talk to them. They already know what they expect from you. It's uh. It's a cool thing, a really cool thing. So tell me from now, so COVID obviously has been a great um, home workspace eye-opener. Certainly for my clients, they you know go, we, we need a decent office, well thought out, because we're never gonna go back to the other office full-time um, ever. Um, and nurturing themselves with their office space has become more important. And then where to from here? What do you see 2001 bringing uh, for Grove Maiden for yourself and for Joe?
1: Sure. So the pandemic, I mean, it will end. But I do think some of the, what people have learned about how you can work is going to stick. Like you said, some people are never going to go back or not fully back. And this appreciation for what space does for you, it's going to stick. And that's good for companies like ours that are built around design and thoughtfulness because before people just didn't really think about it, you know, and this pandemic forced people to think about it. So for us, uh, I think, you know, definitely a threat on the horizon is that suddenly we're in a very hot field. Which we were precisely trying to avoid Sure. because the iPhone case we went through that. So we're like, okay, let's go into this much more niche, area Uh, and we were doing fine we were doing really well Uh, and now uh, with COVID the opportunity is just creating a rush of competition so we need to be really careful that we are uh, delivering exceptional value to our customers and that we are differentiate enough that when the market floods it's not going to be like iPhone case again and I think I think we can survive it you know we're much more we've learned so much in the last decade Uh, Learning a little bit every day, and it's completely (laughs) different this time. I don't. I don't think we're just going to get run over like what happened with iPhone case. We have a lot more that we can do.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that you said to me before about um, knowing who your customer is is this is is a big strength in that, and because you know who your customer is, you know you you, you've got it. You've established who is you? Is for you and who isn't for you. Um, that's quite different from an iPhone case where it was an iPhone user. These are people actually producing their incomes or their family needs from behind those desks or in those spaces. Um, that's a very, very different shift from somebody wanting it to look cool as they walk down the street. Completely different,
1: yep. To me, it's it's architecture, furniture, and then our stuff is... The next step. It, it's the, it, the mindset is pretty similar, and we're going more and more closer to my previous career as a furniture designer, which is really exciting for me. Yeah, I love furniture. I had a hard time business wise there. I, um, thrived creatively, but the business side was tough. And iPhone cases was the other way around, and now we're kind of going back towards furniture. So if
0: if you were to head back into furniture, what would be the biggest lesson you've learned in? Um, with made from the workspace culture, what would be the biggest lesson or two lessons that you'd carry forward um, if you were to go, look, we're going to do furniture?
1: Uh, if I were going to do furniture, I mean, when I was doing it, it was more, it was custom.
0: bespoke, yeah.
1: And I was making something for a single individual and I didn't really have to think about the market. Uh, and I didn't really have to think as much about Manufacturability because yeah, it's just one right mm-hmm. so if I were to start another furniture company, it would be a totally different mindset uh, we have a, we have a completely different uh, skill set knowing how to make finely crafted things at scale um, I think I would avoid I would still stick with direct to consumer uh-huh. any of these really high labor intensive activities that are hard to move from cheaper countries to more expensive countries, bigger things. It's just tough to have distribution models where you you need to give people huge percentages, uh, actually the showroom style. So i probably still go direct, Um, but furniture, furniture is tough. Furniture is tough. Uh, It's just not as the the pure size of it makes things challenging for internet business. Yeah. It's a different business. So, We've we've dabbled in designing a desk actually, uh-huh. and we've actually put quite a bit of money into developing one. And we gave up about a year ago because we just couldn't. It's hard to make it work work business wise. But yeah, right. I could see us eventually doing that again. Yeah, once we're, we regroup and we learn a little bit more, maybe we
0: can tackle it again. It's uh it's an interesting one because it's. It would be, you know, if you sat down with 10 people, they'd say, well, why don't you do the desk? Why don't you do the, you know, the bookshelf? Mm-hmm. Why don't you do the chair? Why don't you do... Yet each one of those has a completely different warehousing model. Everything's different, you exactly. know? Exactly. Um, shipping, fulfillment, all the business side of what has to happen. You could probably make a beautiful one-off desk and a beautiful one-off mm-hmm. chair. Um, but to actually scale it is... So, getting that scalability into a product is really key. Um,
1: mm-hmm. And, and a nasty be... lesson if
0: you oversell it. Because
1: <laughs>
0: <Right. laughs> that's that another thing. Point. Like, yeah, your price point would be, um, you know, maybe three or four times what your biggest price point would be now on that well, item. At least, at, at least, at least you know. yeah. And then you go, well, even if it was 10 times on it, then you go, well, hold on, I've got a lot of. Uh, Cash that goes out for every one of these that happens, you know, I've got, I've, I've expended a lot of money, and I've expended a lot of time, capacity, and um, capability, and cash flow are all expended in that. So, uh, yeah, again, it's a it's an interesting model <laughs> to to tackle. Um, with the rise of the home office, what's probably the thing that surprised you most uh, that people have? bought more of than you expected or that became more important in the home office than you would have expected?
1: Well, I'm still surprised. You know, some of our product, I'm always surprised that our product launches, you just never know, you know, products that I think are not going to resonate with our customers always sell well. And things that I think are great don't sell well. (laughs) That's just, that's (laughs) just kind of the way it is. Uh, But uh, you know, what's, our fundamental product line is pretty established and strong. Um, I think like some of the stationary type things yep. are interesting to me. Yeah, and we've seen like glimpses of success there, and also some flops. So we're still trying to figure that out. Cool. Uh, kind of the notebooks and pens that area.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um... I see that that that's going to rise. There's no doubt about it. And that's going to create more um, opportunity in that marketplace. And there's going to be the diversity also where, you know, a a couple might share an office, but they want their individuality in that space. Um, And the aesthetic of the, the space has to be nurturing for both. And so product variation starts to turn up at that point, I imagine um and then also the the thing of transitioning people from their workplace to their home and when they're both the same thing or to their family if they've got kids to their family space as well um you know those are transitions that are need to be healthfully managed and i think with something like you know, the pandemic we've we've got the ability to see that there's a lot of depression out there. There's a lot of people needing help. There's a lot of um, people feeling isolated and stuff. And so having the ability to transition from one to the other so that you don't carry your problems from one area into the other area and, you know, poison everything or, you know, keep keeping a positive, uh, attitude i've got friends who have been who are in the states who have been basically working from home since march you know and you go wow like that that's a big gig but especially if they're if they're in a, in a uh, sorry um extroverted people who feed with other per- mm. people you know that's a big part that makes a difference to people and how can your product um transition multiple personalities in a single space um right it's probably a really you know it's going to be a question that will come up at some point um so you went to uh, rhode island school of design that's pretty prestigious um tell how how did you end up in there you're from portland and uh, rhode island's nowhere near portland and so uh, my
1: <laughs> my friends at the school would uh, make fun of me that it was a computer glitch that I got accepted because <laughs> everybody else there is like elite art kids and I had no background in art, uh, formal background. So my theory is for the graduate program of architecture, which I applied to, they were trying to have a diversity. Yeah, of, right. different backgrounds you had people with industrial design architecture and they must have had a column for like none like no background
0: no background give (laughs) me a go
1: yeah (laughs) so uh that that was brutal you know uh to be thrown in in there and be under prepared and feeling like the uh the least
0: talented Uh, person in the room but i learned a lot of lessons from that too you know and maybe it wasn't that you were least talented. It was just it hadn't been bought out yet. <laughs> See, In terms of like pure creative talent, um, what that experience
1: taught me was that that's not everything actually. Yeah. Just talent alone is like just one part of it, right? Yeah. So since I couldn't compete on talent, it forced me to think of other ways. Yeah. Uh, to really drill down on what matters, which is strategy. So a talented person could be working really hard on the wrong thing, and then there was me like actually doing what the point of the project was. Yeah. Right. And then that's what matters. Right. So that's, that kind of thing.
0: That's, that's a really valuable that kind of thinking. That's a that. fantastic lesson for, for listeners. You know, talent isn't enough, but that you need the strategy and the strategy will carry the talent through. You need the talent mm-hmm. to, to match that, but uh, without strategy. Um, yeah. Your talent is just maybe spinning your wheels. It may be, exactly. well, depending on your goal, you know, if you can afford to just spin your wheels, then spend your life spinning your wheels, you know. But um, it's, it's like I look at someone like Kelly Slater, the surfer. Um, Kelly, incredibly talented, like unbelievably talented. Fierce competitor, oh, hell yeah. You know, strategist, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, as much as being able to compete or being able to surf, you don't get to be the most um, celebrated, you know, most times world champion of anything, um, unless you actually know the strategy to win and yeah. winning strategy is key, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. Um, with the home office or the workspace, um, is there a temptation to take it to office as well? Like where it's an uh, external office?
1: Oh, definitely. For sure. Um, uh, you know, it's funny now because we know what, what has happened, but we were, and I personally was heavily criticized in the past for not going after corporate because it seems like an ar- obvious opportunity to contract on the contract route. Yeah. The opportunity is way bigger to sell a thousand desks to Microsoft or whatever.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, and we stayed out of it. We stayed committed to direct, stayed committed to selling to individual consumers. Uh, we stopped discounting. If somebody wanted to buy a lot, we're like, okay, you can go on the website and buy it.
0: Cool, man. Yeah, press the button. It keeps clicking up, yeah. up, 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 up. You want exactly. 500 of you want those. That, that's yeah. great. That's you know, we're great. not going
1: to do all this negotiation and discounting. Mm-hmm. You know, For a company like ours, it actually costs us more. If you order 1,000 of or something from us right now, we're going to make less money on you than selling a thousand to single people. Cause our entire business is dialed in for individual. Concealers. I was
0: about to say, yeah. And also, uh, you know, like your production scheduling and all that sort of stuff goes out oh, the yeah. door. Suddenly you're, you know, you've, you've got warehousing issues or you've got, um, you know, product supply issues that, uh, exactly. Takes your eye off the ball. I, I think or even, that. Or even shipping, right? Yeah, sure. Even shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Like How many don't, UPS don't trucks? We don't have
1: facilities to, to create.
0: We don't do that. You know? Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think is interesting is like in the future, what was, what I would great to put your stick in the mud and make a prediction, but I'll give it a go. Um, people who do go back to their office, who did curate a beautiful home office, companies who take the lead and either give their employees the ability to purchase a certain amount of office equipment um, or take the lead and create curated spaces that use beautiful products that uh, have the ethics and the ethos are going to attract better people. That's my prediction. Mm -hmm. I think that the space will move to that, that um, to get people to come in from home where they've made this beautiful office uh, into back into an environment where it's um, multi-office is going to take some persuasion. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it might. Now that people are used to it, we know it's possible.
0: Yeah, a lot of people have
1: moved actually. I know, I know people who've moved.
0: To yeah, I do too. I do too. Hawaii I know people or wherever. Sure, we've got people flooding from Sydney and Melbourne. Um, for that exact reason because uh, we haven't been locked down since about April sometime, we've had fairly free movement, we were only down for probably about 6 or 8 weeks or something and in that time I went surfing just about every day, I actually went to my studio because everybody else wasn't there, so I left the house and went to my studio um, because the team wasn't there they they were at home and uh, I just had the place to myself but yeah, just interesting. You know, we haven't we're nothing like where you guys are at in in this in the curve of what's happening. But it certainly also made me go, um, you know what? I need to do more with my my studio space. I need to make it more what I need it to be or want it to be. So uh, it's about to hit a refurbishment. So mm-hmm. um, for that reason, you know, I just go it it's, it's functional it was not it's nice it does everything that it should do but i would like it to be something more than that so um mm-hmm. yeah uh, that's that's uh, it's on my drawing board so uh it might be clicking the the numbers button and sending some stuff out to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just keep clicking on that up there. Huh? yeah just just keep clicking it um is there one thing that you can uh, tell listeners that would like to take a similar journey to yours that if you'd known 10 years ago, or t- I can probably think of a few things, but 10 or 15 years ago, um, that if, you learned, if you'd learned it then, it would have changed the game along the way and got you where you are faster.
1: Uh, well, I think the biggest thing I underestimated was the, that the bottleneck would really be people and uh, the skill it takes to properly lead a team and, and create a positive culture where you can, people can uh, drive the business forward and also be happy at the same time is, is, is an impossibly difficult challenge. Uh, and not focusing on that early enough was, caused us years it caused years of pain when we didn't know how to do that. So my advice would be don't underestimate the non-creative uh, people, culture, leadership part of the game.
0: That's a really good tip. It is such a good tip. My wife happens to be a leadership coach uh, for businesses, and generally men in business as well, um, is her main target market. And, you know, I think often women are far more attuned to often um, understanding people better or being the nuances of people um, that men kind of just go, we'll we'll make it work. We'll bulldoze through. Uh
2: Um,
0: But that's a long road you're bulldozing that you could actually just take a jet jump down um, Mm -hmm. with the right kind of mentorship or something like that. Don't, as you say, don't underestimate it. Surround yourself by the right people. Um, Ken, fascinating talk man really loved it Um, I would encourage everybody to get into uh, onto your website look at Grovemade Um, it's grovemade.com and uh, we'll post all those socials and things like that um, in the podcast and you can uh, find it that way but this is a, a fabulous product it's beautifully crafted it's well thought out it's handmade and it comes from you know the heart of somebody with a massive creative passion um, to sit and live on your desk and enhance your life and i think that's a a beautiful way to live life like treat yourself enough to uh, or nurture yourself enough to have something around you of value that will also infuse into the rest of your life that what what great value is and handmade products are and they're beautifully crafted. So, again, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks a lot for having
0: me. You're welcome.
2: Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers, doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say why not just leave it as it is and see how they answer and then you might say why did you want to speak to me why did you not get someone else and see if they follow you, see if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're gonna get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it, because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either gonna react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.